0: Welcome to the Raft Podcast, Let's Fix Things, where Hus and myself, Joe Fletcher, explore the world of connected experiences, spanning from connected services, platforms, and devices over industries such as transportation, smart home, logistics, healthcare, and media. Hus and I started this podcast to explore design and strategy topics in more depth coming from the projects we handle in our design consultancy. Now, on to the show. good evening. Hey, man. Afternoon. Yeah. Cool. Still so, good. <laughs> excellent. So today we have a guest with us. We're going to get right into things. And we'd like to welcome uh, Paul Skinner from Tellart, which Paul is a creative director and Tellart is an experienced design firm. If I got all that right, Paul, please feel free to correct me in a moment. Paul is local to Amsterdam, but Tellart has offices all over the world uh, working. And we saw Paul... Uh, I guess it was about two months ago. We've been trying to get this together for, for quite some time. Yeah, it's taken a while, eh? And, and it's and everything's finally worked out, which is great. Uh, and we saw Paul, maybe two months ago, give a talk about some of the clients he's been working with, and we'll get into that in a moment. But before all of that, Paul, do you want to introduce yourself, tell a little bit about who you are, what TellArt is?
1: Yeah, hi. So I'm Paul Skinner. I'm a creative director at TellArt, and we describe ourselves as an experience design company. Um, for us, uh, that means experimenting with uh, different technologies at the intersection of various dis- uh, design disciplines. Uh, and the idea eventually is to create new forms of human experience for the sake of storytelling and learning and so on.
0: So what you just said about um, creating new experiences uh, and, and storytelling aspect, when we saw you give a talk uh, a few months ago, you referenced some of the work that you had been doing for the Dubai government really looking forward about what Dubai could become as a city. And the way I always thought about this was a little bit of futurist work. And we were talking right before the podcast that, you know, you don't necessarily call yourself a futurist. It's more of an experienced designer, but you think in terms, or at least for this project of what the future could hold. And what I thought was so unique about that, that we haven't discussed on the podcast before is some of the tools that you've used or just how you go about doing that. How do you even think about imagining the future of a city like Dubai?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, for this project, for us, has been a fantastic voyage over the last four years. Um, we were invited by the Prime Minister's office in Dubai to help them construct an experience of the future as part of a government summit that they hold annually in Dubai called the World Government Summit. And the purpose of this was to uh, provide an, exp- like, a a physical storytelling experience of various futures in order for government leaders who are mostly creating new policies and initiatives for the country to be able to imagine what kinds of futures we might be dealing with and, and what kinds of policies they should create. Because every single decision we make on a daily daily basis has implications. And if you think about Dubai as an interesting um, context for this kind of work, it's changed completely in the last 40 years. It's gone from very very much like an empty country, just desert and a very inhospitable place to live, to a kind of booming megalopolis in which the future is everywhere you look. The, the, the pace of change is astonishing. And so people um, who lived there are kind of used to seeing what they consider the future all around them. It's a very technocentric world. And so for us, this was a chance to unpick some of those assumptions that people make on a daily basis about how technology fits into our lives and figure out what kinds of lives we might live in the future as a result of the technologies, trends, and other large scale drivers which are pushing us in different directions today. So I can imagine
2: that it's what what they would want to see as a client is is mostly their utopian
1: futures right well it's interesting you say that and i think one of the um that i mean that's a, that's a normal assumption to make but actually no like i think what we found really really pleasing about these projects was that dubai especially at that level in government of course that they want to be provoked into into new perspectives on these things they want to really question uh these kind of railroads that big corporations uh, who are inventing new technologies for us uh, would have us believe are the designated futures. This isn't necessarily about creating utopian, uh, utopias, sorry. Instead, this is about um, understanding the implications of these technologies, some of which may be utopian, some of which may not be, and trying to find a, a, a provocative platform on which to create debate because we want to engage people with these ideas, which are often complex um, and help them imagine how they can make a difference to that future. So could you see it a little
2: bit like, we've seen how some of the technologies we have today were a little bit shaped by what we saw in sci-fi, what we used to see on TV, like when we were growing up. Do you see yourself in a way by the ideas you pick and choose to work out? maybe even shaping the future, not only the debate?
1: I mean, absolutely, yeah. I think that there's a, that's, that's a very real thing. Um, I think what, what sci-fi does so well is it enables you to suspend your disbelief just for an hour or two hours or for a whole book or, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it creates a world in which you can immerse yourself, uh, which typically explains some pretty complex concepts about how our world could change in a very uh, relatable fashion. So you're talking about having a love story aboard a spacecraft or something like that. Like those kinds of narratives really help us to to understand uh, this completely different world. And it's similar with fantasy and so on. And I think that when you do that, you do, yes, like people who, when you see the the same kind of tropes over and over again, you are restricting the kinds of futures that we could have but at the same time, you're helping people engage with those things. And it's a difficult balancing act to figure out whether in fact you, like it's a positive thing to say, these, I mean, opening up new avenues for discussion is is entirely like, sci-fi creates futures just the same as it restricts futures. Yep. And we do the same thing, but um, we try to do it non-exclusively. We're trying to do it in a way which, which encourages people to think for themselves about how, how these how these, um, these different eventualities might occur.
0: When you create these experiences, so I, I, I've seen it, and for people who are listening, um, do you have anything on the website about this project?
1: Sure, yeah. There are several things on the website to look at, um, and indeed several talks that might be worth li- listening to from, from members of our team, like Christian, uh, Christian Irvin did one at IXDA last this year. Sorry, uh, That was very, very good. I should describe it really a little bit. It's like an immersive, um, it's an immersive experience. If you imagine like a, uh, a museum of some sort where the scenography of a space helps tell the story of this uh, narrative that we're trying to convey.
0: Do you think of these spaces and all the different experiences in them as one complete story? Or do you try to divide it up into different futures that could happen based on a series of events or a technology? And, and this is this is something I'm very curious about because we do we do digital, right? So we don't get to often think about these these spatial relationships. So I'm curious when you when you lay these pieces out, how in 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 the concept form do they come together?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I would say that for us in creating these interactive spaces, uh, the actual space design and the narrative of the space and the interactive components within it, which allow people to engage with that future. These, these narratives through products and services that might exist in the future, that actually is a, is a last step almost in the process. This is kind of like our bread and butter as a experience design firm. We can create immersive experiences that tell stories, but really a large part of the work is in mapping out what these futures might be so that we are t- creating scenarios which are useful stories to tell and plausible stories of the future. And then that the, the the areas that we want to talk about, the drivers of change, and the impacts and implications for people in the future, uh, kind of dictates how we structure the story in the end experience.
0: When I think through a lot of the conversations that we've had on this podcast, and a lot of a lot of the more philosophical conversations, whether that's the ethics of self-driving cars, whether that's the convenience of Amazon delivery, I think. M- You know, Khus, you're a little bit more optimistic than I am. Hmm. I tend to be a little bit more pessimistic and oftentimes see these technologies or the ways that we are designing things going towards more of a dystopian future. And I'm curious, when you create these experiences, how do you come at it objectively where you don't necessarily land in a future that reflects your personality, let's say, because the arguments in your head are carrying you towards some sort of dystopian future, but you can look at it from more of a, well, this could be X or it could be Y, right? Like, um, to, to, to give you the example here, we were discussing how Amazon in the US will deliver things and it's getting down to, you know, a, f- a couple hours. And at that point, you're going to start questioning leaving your house, right? Why do I have to go to the store? And VR comes along, and why do I have to leave the, you know my house to meet friends? And all of a sudden, you're in the situation like Wally dictated, right? Where I'm sitting in a, in a wheelchair, basically, with a double big, big gulp on my chest, right? And this is the eventuality that we, ca- you know, that we carry some of these conversations to. But in the work that you've seen, I see much more utopian aspects. And how do you have these conversations? Uh, how, how do you pivot or, or just discuss these topics in a way that you get to an end point do you do you discuss things from a philosophical point of view or is it just more of self-driving cars you know um you know, could do x y and z x is going to be the utopian version and that's what we think we want to uh, set up so that will cause that debate so the way that we approach these things is uh i think i think to start
1: with the the key to understanding the future or futures in general is about mapping uncertainties. Like the the forces which push us, push us in different directions um, are around us all the time every day. And it ranges from um, the economy to the climate and the environment to uh, politics to like, I don't know, like what you, which side of bed you woke up in the morning. Like lots of uncertainties and some are more important than others. And a lot of the techniques we use um, to objectively map out different futures that might occur are systems of mapping and assessing those uncertainties and their implications so we go through a process um, involving typically a lot of uh, experts subject matter experts which we can draw on their knowledge so that so that we can map the how these how these uncertainties can be grouped how they could be structured in terms of importance, and how they could be um how they could be used to combine with new developments in technology to foresee a future that might occur. And we're not trying to suggest that these futures are either utopian or not, you know, uh, at all. Uh, what we're trying to suggest is that these are critical uncertainties that we don't know whether they'll go this way or that way. If they go this way, maybe one thing goes this way, but the other thing goes that way. And it ends up with something which is positive and vice versa. You know, it doesn't, that's not important, what's important right now is the things that we don't know, these complex, this complex system of uncertainty which is the world around us today can can push us in ways that we don't have the agency, we don't feel like we have agency to control. And so when we start mapping these uncertainties, we can really figure out, okay, if this thing happens and this thing happens, then we might end up in this situation and this is positive and negative for one reason or another. I would say on optimism, We found it really important to be optimistic in the way that we do this. That's not because we're trying to create utopian futures per se, it's because as designers, we want to have impact. And as with anything, if you say, if you are are pessimistic about something and you feel like this is a problem which can't be solved, then it's not gonna get solved. If you're optimistic and you realize that you have power as a designer to help shape things and people's understanding of a concept, then that can be tremendously powerful in shifting perspectives on a given topic.
0: So I I would challenge you on the at least on the the pessimistic side because I, I don't necessarily and I think also my my framing of things, I I I self-frame by saying I'm pessimistic or I'm dystopian. But frankly for a lot of people sitting at home with VR goggles, uh, not having to go to the store and getting everything delivered to you could be quite utopian. So, you know, th- this is also the weird conversation of you know, one person's utopian future is the other person's dystopian future, right? There's plenty of people who are who are sitting around saying technology is eroding our social interactions and we need to put down the phones and talk to each other more while people like me are, oh, Jesus, I have to talk to you in person? Christ, can't I just, you know, message you? Wouldn't that be easier? If you had to think about or if you had to articulate what you've seen as some of the most important trends looking forward, some of those, some of those variables that are moving, but you feel are quite important when you think about defining what could be in the future. What are the things that pop top of mind to you?
1: Well, I think for sure right now, given the current um, or recent events that have happened around the world, I feel like climate change is a massive thing, which is going to affect us all in different ways. I think that our reaction to that in different parts of the world is going to affect us. I think, um, automotive technologies, which will, increasingly see jobs uh, shift and transform and new technological developments uh, be enabled, which we hadn't foreseen before. I think um, our economic climate, I think very generally our economic climate is really, really very volatile right now. And the idea of a, a large disconnect between the richest and the poorest is gonna create a lot of political upheaval. And I think these major drivers of change along with say mass migration, those things, those are the big picture things which are gonna change our world completely.
0: What, what I love so much about what you just said is when we talk about these things, we often think of the trends within technology. We get so, like, like I, just, I just loved, cause you, you you sort of pivoted my view on a lot of this. Cause in my head, I'm thinking self-driving cars, personal security, convenience of delivery, whether that delivery be media or physical objects. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, of some of the other things we've talked about, but I immediately index towards uh, silicon versus uh, you know economic situations. Although we have talked a lot about policy and regulation, so I, th- I think that's a really a, a really great uh, contrasting view. Uh, just a question: Were you at the What Design Can Do conference? Yes, yeah. I I totally missed you there then. Yeah. Yeah. D- did you talk? No. No. Not okay. That, no, no. One of the things is as I was listening to that conference is I thought about if I could ask a question to the audience, uh, and and actually let me back up for a second. So What Design Can Do is uh, an annual conference that generally poses questions to designers that are much more than screen-based design. It is ethical questions. It is philosophical questions. And this year, it all revolved around climate change. As I started thinking what I would post to the audience, one thing kept coming back to me, which is um, how do we support 9 billion people in 2050? Which is this projection of, and this is some of the breakout sessions I was in, was going after how do we support 9 billion people with climate change happening? That if we let this happen, sea levels will rise, weather will change, parts of the earth will be uninhabitable. Uh, And then the very next day I was at a conference around agriculture and discussions of how you feed 9 billion people by 2050. And the question that I wanted to ask the audience was what happens if we don't, because there is, there is all this, you know, if we don't, if we don't make change now, we're going to let a billion people die. And my honest response was okay. What if we do? And I think people, when I discuss this with people, they see it as a very negative response, right? Of course, I'm, I'm sitting here saying, well, how can you possibly think of letting 1 billion people die, right? But what I, what I really dislike and, and what I've come to realize is that we're having these gatherings talking about what we can do for the future. But if I reach in my pocket and pull out my phone, I have an iPhone, right? I have supported a company where workers have committed suicide, a fo- you know, Apple through Foxconn, uh, where workers have committed suicide due to working conditions, where batteries are mined uh, in, in areas of Africa that use child labor. Right? I'm already contributing in my own way to people's deaths. And it bothers me that we're saying, let's look at the future when even doing something as simple as cutting out beef from my diet right now could help things now and in the future. So that was the question I started thinking about, is is why do I care if one billion people die? Why aren't I doing something now?
1: There's a a thousand things that people could do to change their lifestyles right now that could make a huge difference to climate change. I think what we're seeing is that people are not changing and certainly not at the scale that they need to change. And the question is why? And I think it's pretty clear that there isn't a, a clear motivating factor there, which is making people change. Um, I'm not going to get richer by changing. My life isn't going to change. I'm not going to enjoy eating steak. I like steak. And the reason for this is because um, the scale of change and the scale of time on which climate change is happening is actually very, very difficult for us to comprehend as humans. As humans, we think in terms of our own lives. I think, oh, I'm feeling old today. I'm feeling old only in terms of my, I'm only 33, you know, like I'm thinking old in terms of my parents age and my grandparents age and when people died and so on but this is this climate change has been happening over hundreds of years multiple generations and if you even think now at the political shift that we've had over the last uh, few years like it we're getting to the point where people who have experienced such rises in populism are dying out or have died out you know, and so like, it doesn't take a take a genius to figure out that actually, unless we can see change happening in front of us, we don't feel motivated to change. And so the question is, how do we get beyond that? And I don't think any of us have solved it. I've solved it, you know, like I think it's very, very scary. When we were doing our research for our last exhibition in Dubai, which was called Climate Change Reimagined, the whole purpose of this was to have people rethink their approach to climate change, to stop it being a story of, uh, impending doom and pessimism and start thinking about it positively as an opportunity, as a business opportunity. Because like at the end of the day, in order to actually change people's uh, behaviors, we have to figure out what new design interventions we're going to make in their lives. But this can be a business thing. It can be something that you can grow from and countries can benefit from. And I think Dubai has a really unique opportunity in that they are thinking about how they can diversify their economy. They want to grow away from oil. They are looking at other whole economies, but they're also already living in a harsh environment, an inhospitable place, one which they've learned how to cope with. They're desalinating water. They've got, um, you know, AC units on every building. So. Yeah. They they've already they've been doing a lot of damage over the past years but they're also changing fast and they're learning how to cope with it in a way that could be exported to other nations and so the provocation was that actually already in 2016 we've passed the point of no return you know like we're going to get incredibly close to this horrific thought that everyone might die because of our actions on on planet earth but we can still turn this around it's going to get bad but we can still turn it around and what we need to do is start perceiving this as an opportunity something that we can design towards and something that we need to understand the characteristics of as a design challenge if we're going to move past it and it's exactly like you said like how do we get people to not be thinking about themselves and the impact that a new product is going to have on their immediate lives and start thinking long term so when i discuss exactly
2: this topic with with my friends and and with like fellow future uh, improvers <laughs> yeah like every designer always wants to fix problems that's that's the bug in our heads <laughs> i always feel that when you talk about what can i do myself i don't want to say there's nothing but you you definitely get that kind of there's no return on investment right now and i always compare it to going on a diet like when you go on a diet, it takes a really, really long time before you start to see the results. Mm. And it really depends on even the type of diet and how heavy you are taking this. And of course, with things like climate change, that result is even further out and you'll never notice it on yourself. Yep. And you can look at the weather report, but that is actually, that has nothing to do with cli- climate change in the end, because it's, it's by definition, long-term. Mm-hmm. So I have the feeling that you're kind of losing the battle there. So I'm, I'm curious if we can somehow make a placebo effect or something else that can repeat back to you what you're doing for this or how how you are contributing? Or is there any value that we can return to people for what they're doing? Because even if we would make it economically cheaper for them to be uh, better for the environment and therefore for climate change, we're, we're talking about very little money in the end anyway, because energy is not that expensive. And I When I talk about the carrot and the stick method, I don't want to talk about, okay, let's put 500% taxes on energy and see if that helps, because that's just gonna make it an an even more negative thing. That's, I I want to see if there's a a positive way of solving this problem.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting challenge for sure. I think that, I mean, if you look at corporations and at countries, more generally and the scale at which those things exist. You know, Mm -hmm. like if if you combine like Facebook and Google and, you know, Shell or whatever, you know, you already have like a small country there in those three organizations. And I think that's, although, although yes, like when you think at a human, at an individual level, it's difficult to imagine how you can give a sense of immediate, tangible feedback to show how they're gonna make a difference. I think that everyone is part of these larger systems. And one of the challenges, of course, is that because, like, in their use of these technologies, they're, in, they're in endorsing the ethical standpoint and the kind of decisions that this company is making, which yep. is kind of going back to um, the earlier point about iPhones. You yep. know, like it's in your pocket and you've already voted for them. And I think that like as designers, I think that one of our jobs increasingly is about translating... The implications of our decisions when we buy such products and services from people. Yeah. You know, like the the inherent or or rather the um, the inbuilt implications that you that you are choosing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We design interfaces between the company and the people buying it, right? And if that interface is digital pixels on the screen, the device itself, or even a flyer or or a commercial on TV. It is the thing that in the end faces the clients. It's not companies talking to users directly that no. the director walks out on the street and does his own yeah. stuff. So somehow we as designers, if we could stick together and form an opinion, we could make a big step in, in at least public awareness of these things. I
1: think awareness is a big part of it. I think awareness is a big part of it. And I think that that's why we found such enjoyment as designers who want to create impact in this um, Futures work in Dubai because we found ourselves with an audience of rather than consumers, we found ourselves with an audience of policymakers and um, CEOs yeah. who have the agency to make huge impact in their corporation if they have that awareness. Mm-hmm. And so our experiences of the future are designed to create feelings, like yeah. rather than just giving people information, you know, like we make decisions as emotional beings. And so when you have people who are designing policies, instead of forcing them to read a 300-page report about how automotive technologies are gonna you know, take our jobs, we allow them to feel what it's like, you know, yeah. then they, they can really, really change their perspectives. It's very, very powerful. It's a unique opportunity.
0: So, let me challenge you on, on something you said a moment ago, which was we don't wanna like impose taxes and these types of things, the, the carrot and the stick. But I would, I would argue, or I could argue the other way, that two things stick out. One, as global trade picked up, there are certain tariffs on certain countries, right? You, you want to import more from one country than from other countries. And so why couldn't you apply you know, tariffs or taxes in the same way to technologies that you want to use, right? Why is, why is that a negative thing?
2: I'm, I'm not saying that's a negative thing or impossible. I'm just saying that I think you can motivate people in a positive way and actually not making the feeling that you're helping climate change feeling like a negative thing to do. So um, if those things become more expensive, then you still want them. They're just more expensive and therefore it gives you a negative feeling. Whereas if you're seeing that not buying it was a good decision, Without the whole taxes behind it, it the feeling changes. And therefore, th- that's the thing that I, I draw back to the diet or, or even New Year's resolutions. People always think they're a good idea in the beginning, but because it's a death by a thousand cuts, it's all these little things around you that are changing and are making your quality of life feel less, it becomes very hard for people to keep up with it. Um, so if you can somehow give it a positive spin, give you a way of tracking what you're doing and, and, and seeing how that is actually helping the, the complete picture, I think you can do much more than by basically making it more difficult to have your previous lifestyle.
0: So I, I don't disagree with that. I would layer one thing on top, which is we've seen Tesla and uh, what is, is Solar City. Is that the, uh, yep. is that the, the, we've seen those be successful companies. I'm not sure Tesla is a successful company because it's an electric car company. I think it looks great. It's a combination of these things, right? It's like yeah. I can buy a car that looks great it, you know, it, it looks its price point and it helps things. Oh, cool. Right. But, but it starts at the point where for some people, yes, they buy because it it's an electric car. But on a broad way, people are also buying it because it looks great and it does these things that are beneficial. So it's this combination. And it, it feels to me like you got it. You have a lot of companies that are existing based on old methods that are doing things that are disruptive to the, to the ecosystem of of, of Earth. But if you if maybe it's less about great business ideas for existing companies, but empowering entrepreneurs because you always see again we talked about this before when you shift uh, paradigms and technology, new companies always come in right. Microsoft yeah. had the, the desktop, Apple and Google have the mobile phone. You know Amazon is taking over the home, and so maybe that's the same thing here. Is that you go from uh, typical you know, engines and cars, and you have uh, you know Toyota and Ford and BMW, and now you shift to electric and you have Tesla, And uh, you know, maybe it can be the same thing with different technologies. We're just purely thinking about it in terms of how do existing companies change? And we should be saying, how do we empower entrepreneurs to come up and, and basically take control of this new situation?
2: Yeah, of course. But I, I think it's kind of uh, an easy way out because we're, we're trying to solve problems and the end user cannot help in solving those problems unless they go to university and go help and solve those problems at the companies that are trying to solve them. But of course, if we solve free energy, then we don't need to burn oil anymore. And if we make electric a cheaper alternative to create and to sell and to distribute electric cars, then of course, we don't need to burn gasoline in cars anymore. So there's two sides to attack this problem. That's one, two make sure that the negative, uh, alternatives are, um, uh, yeah, basically. So if, if the positive alternatives are cheaper and, and better at the same time, then it will not be a choice for people even to go for the other ones, right? Maybe people yeah. want to drive an old timer, but <coughs> anybody would buy an electric car if it was cheaper and better.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you might, I think you might start to... I mean, when you're talking, for example, about Tesla, it's interesting to think about that as, you know, like aspirational marketing exercise as well. You know, like they've been very, very clever in concocting a vision for people that resonates with them so that they want to be seen as the the kind of person that drives a Tesla. And that's an age-old recipe. That's how advertising has been working since, what, the 50s? But I think that, like, as disruptive things start to happen, um, that's going to change as well. You know, like the idea of... Uh, cryptocurrencies being a way to uh, track and indelibly track, like your consumption, for example, or your use of energy, or the amount of carbon dioxide you're um, indirectly releasing into the atmosphere, and the idea of a, a new form of currency that might actually have value in that in that sense would may disrupt this. It may be that like actually that that is it's not about like projecting a new identity anymore. It's about actually. Uh, generating less CO2 coins because you want to put your kids in the right school this year. And there's there's a, an equilibrium there. Or there's an ecosystem that we've created artificially around that, uh, which is policy. Well, we don't know what's gonna happen. I mean, you also, conversely, like to fit in exactly with Goose Point, you have those crazy disruptive uh, tipping points happening right now. Like in India, I read the other day, they've canceled a whole bunch of coal power stations because the price of solar has dropped so much that there's actually no, these building sites are just standing half completed because there's no value in completing this coal station anymore. So that is going to happen. I mean, these things are happening and there's a massive, now there's a massive drive towards that stuff. So when you think about all of these different points of inflection, it just contributes to how, uncontrollable unpredictable uncertain our world is these days and how as designers we have to reassert ourselves as the arbiters of you know dutiful future making you know this is about deliberately creating a future which is better and creating a story of that future that people can buy into meaningfully you know they understand the future they're buying into and they do so deliberately like that's something that we can all change in small ways and large ways
0: so I, I think that's a, a great uh, point to wrap up on, just sort of giving a a framing on what designers could do. And I think that's actually, it, it, it's it been great to have you on because uh, you bring a lot of new viewpoints that we don't often discuss here. And also I, I think that uh, Hus and I can often, or I'll speak for myself, look at views in a very specific way that may not always have the best outcome. So it's quite refreshing to have somebody here who's sort of challenging us to say, you know, hey guys, what can we actually do to make this, you know, uh, uh, spin it in a positive way, or maybe even the ways that we're looking at it can be positive in themselves. Uh, so, Khus, uh, any last comments from your side? I'm good. Paul, any last words?
1: Mm-hmm. What should I say?
0: No, I think I'm good. Cool. Well, Paul, thank you for joining us this week. And Khus, uh, I'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. Later.